week 10, the right fight. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 23 tonight. We've seen David up until this point go from a dirty shepherd who was a great musician to defeating giants to calming King Saul with his talent at playing the harp finding favor with King Saul, winning battle after battle for King Saul, and then the same king that he was totally submitted to starts to try to kill him with spears. And we come to this place where David has escaped the land. He's in this four-year transitional uh, kind of season that people call a sojourn. It's a state of temporary dwelling. He's, he's, he has gone from a boy who was living in fields to finding favor in the palace. And now he's had to escape the palace, uh, running for his own life. And last week we saw that David got to this place after going through this season and still in the middle of it, he gets to this place called the Cave of Absalom and he's been learning how to depend on God and that he had to deal with past mistakes. For those of you that uh, haven't been with us, he made a huge mistake. When he left the palace escaping, trying to uh, save his own life, he was looking for bread, he was looking for a weapon, and, and God leads him to the very first place, which was a temple in the city where Goliath was from. And I thought it was kind of cool that like God would lead David to the very place that everyone would hate him. Like Goliath's family was in the city and God's like, David, go there. Well, he goes to this temple and he, go, and he goes inside seeking God. And when he comes to the priest, the priest said, what are you doing here? And he lies and says, Saul sent me here. And we find out later in the, chapel, uh, the chapter because of that lie that the King Saul ordered the killing and slaying of 85 priests. So David has, at a, is at a place where he's learning to depend on God, but he's also had to learn to deal with some past mistakes. Just because you get saved, just because you've been delivered, just because you're moving forward, doesn't mean you get to escape managing past mistakes. David still had to manage that mistake, and the way he managed it was not to run from it he said God I will be faithful to whatever you have me I will do whatever you need me to do and we find at the end of the chapter that, that, that these, 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 the, the son came to him, the people that were related to the priest came to him, and David said, I will protect you, not get away from me. I'm so, I feel so sorry what I did, but I'm going to protect you because I have vowed to God that I'm going to manage this mistake and do what I'm supposed to do. So we're at this place where David is in this cave of Absalom, and he's finally getting out. But before we move into that, there was something in the scripture that I wanted to point out that I thought was so on time for this house. So before we go into chapter 23, I want to read verses 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel chapter 22. It says, So David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Uh, not Absalom, cave of Adullam, my bad. Soon his brothers and all his other relatives joined him there. Then others began coming. Men who were in trouble and debt who were just discontented until David was a captain of about 400 men. And last week we, we, we praised God that he sent these people. But before God sent this army of 400 people to David, we see two things. Number one, David was alone and then family came. Everyone say, David was alone, and then family came. If we want to see the true church rise up, we've got to be obedient to two things. We've got to seek God in our secret places, and we've got to build a house of unity in the spirit of family. 
It is not until we build a church culture who is in love with each other, who is praying for each other, who knows our bad stuff, who knows our good stuff, who knows our giftings, who knows our our shortcomings. It's when we build the family of God together and when we start to seek him individually, he says, then the army of 400 came. I have been in church a long time, most of my life. I've been in a charismatic church for the past 10 or so years, and they all say the same thing. We need an army. We need to go after the city. We need an army. But God will not send the army until you have built a family because the army he's sending is a bunch of messed up people who are in debt, who are broke, who are discontented, and they need fixing and they need healing. And if we don't figure out how to do it, God will never give us the army to manage. The army is not going to be perfect. And what has happened in the church is that we have this idea, this utopian idea, that God's going to send all these people to the church, all these people to Relentless, all these people to to all these churches, and that we're just going to take the city. And God's like, you have not even proven faithful falling in love with your neighbor that sits to you every week. You don't even know their pets' names. You don't even know what they do for a living. You don't even know their kids. And you want me to send you an army? David was alone seeking God, and it says the first thing that came to him was his brothers and his relatives. And then others began coming. Moving to this small campus was a very strategic move. I believe that God has placed me in Pooler, has placed me in Savannah, has placed me here as a man of God who is following him to do some damage to the world system. But I cannot carry that out successfully if we do not create a house of intimacy. We cannot take the city until we have truly learned what the church is supposed to be. In the upper room in Acts, the church was so unified, when people came in with wrong motives, they would fall down dead. And the church has built an organization today where we don't let anyone do anything because we're scared of their motives. But if we're building this right, the motives can't stand. (laughs) So when someone says, I'm ready to serve, you don't have to worry about wrong motives because if they had wrong motives, they wouldn't be able to breathe in the atmosphere. We've got to build the church, not an organization to lift up a pastor, a body who's going to lift up Jesus. When David escaped, the 400, the army came, but it was out of this place of seeking him and family. Why, again, the army needs fixing too. We've got to learn how to manage this thing correctly. So after he has been seeking God, That's a good word. After the family has been uh, built up and joined together, we come to this place in 1 Samuel chapter 23 and look at verse 1. One day, news came to David that the Philistines were at Keilah stealing grain from the threshing floors. Now, remember the context of what's happening here thus far in the story of David. The people of God, the Israelites, are, are under the king... Saul, who God appointed as the first king when he was seeking God. Saul has lost favor. Saul has not been seeking God. And God says, I I regret the day I ever put my anointing on that man. 
The Philistines were the people that Goliath were fighting for. You've got a war against the Israelites and the Philistines. King Saul, as the leader of the Israelites, is supposed to be doing one thing. Focused on advancing in this war and taking the ground that the Philistines think they get to claim. The Philistines are, are coming against the Israelites and King Saul is supposed to be focused on the war. But King Saul has become obsessed with killing off one person. And it was the boy he used to call upon when he needed his soul rested when tormenting spirits came. David. He was obsessed with killing David. He looked at David to, as a threat to himself. And he totally shifted focus from an army of people, the Philistines, coming against the people of God. He has totally shifted focus to where that's the war I should be fighting. But I am obsessed with taking David out. Because he views David as a threat. Sometimes, church, we can get so consumed and distracted fighting the wrong battles and pursuing unworthy fights. And because we give all of our attention to all this other stuff, the enemy, because we have not been focusing on the right battles, he's roaming around like a roaring lion, devouring whatever he can. Not because he has the authority, but because we are focused on the wrong fight. We've got to get focused on the right fight. Why was Saul distracted with the wrong fight? He wasn't seeking God. He was seeking a platform for himself, building himself up as a great leader. Why? He started getting jealous when he heard the, woman, the women singing. They were giving praise for David, and they weren't giving praise for himself. They said, David, you've been killing tens of thousands, and Saul, you've only got thousands. And, and he felt jealous, and he got mad about it. So he said, I'm going to take out the threat to myself. Saul was not seeking God. David was. And the reason that Saul has totally shifted was because he was trying to get control over all these people giving him praise. Because he wasn't seeking God, he could not hear correctly what fight he was supposed to engage in. And I'm here to tell you, the battles you're called to engage in will come from God's voice and not someone else's agenda. Saul has convinced his entire army that all of their focus needs to be on one little shepherd boy who happened to be a great warrior. He's got everyone convinced. Take out David. And all the while in the background, the Philistines at Keilah are stealing the grain. James 4, 7 says, humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice it doesn't say fight the devil. It says resist him. 1 John 4, 4. You belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. We have become obsessed as Christians and believers about winning battles against Satan and demons. But look at the scriptures. Resist the devil, he'll flee. But we spend all of our intercession time and all of our times coming together as a church, we bind the enemy. There's nothing to bind. He's dead. He's defeated. He's nothing. The power in you is greater than the power in him. 
Now, some of you are looking at me crazy because, because you're like, well, what do you mean I can't buy? I'm getting to that. Give me a minute. I'm getting to it. I know we still have a battle against demonic principalities. Don't look at me crazy. It says, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. The spirit is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And while we are obsessed with, with, with trying to fight these battles with Satan and demons and doing all this principality stuff and demonic stuff and, and Satan, 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 we're praying that his reign lessens. But in the meanwhile, our kids are being lost because you spend more time at prayer than you do at home raising your kids. We spend more time trying to bind the enemy than raising up sons and daughters that the enemy never has influence on. We spend more time trying to have healing services than raising people up that know how to administer healing where you never have to have a service because healing is on the streets. Like the goal should not be we've got to get together for healing. The goal should be we've empowered people so much that there is no need to gather for it. We gather because they have been healed. Am I talking to anyone? We try to fight, 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 and we lose focus on what we're really supposed to be doing. Let's read it again, 1 Samuel 23, 1. One day news came to David that the Philistines were at Keilah stealing grain from the threshing floors. The enemy was stealing the things used to make bread. And we have built churches that spend so much time trying to fight the devil that people are starving for bread. Because the fight is not with Satan. The fight is principalities taking grain that they have no right to possess. When we battle against principalities, it's not I'm coming at Satan anymore because Satan's done. He's, he's, he's defeated. We are battling the injustice of living in a lie. We are battling the injustice that he has something we don't. But the scripture says what's in you is greater than what's in the world. The scripture says resist and he'll flee. Resisting is not that hard. Why can't we resist? Because no one has been focusing on protecting the grain used to make the bread that sustains you to resist. Let me, let me put it in a more simple way. We spend so much time saying Satan get away when the true thing that's going to heal us and promote us is getting in here and learning how to make bread with the grain. Because what the enemy has, the only power he has is to suggest something in your mind. So how do we battle through suggestion? Coming together and learning how to make bread to feast on Train, learn how to apply the scriptures, learn what all the giftings are, learn the power that is in us, learn how to host it, learn how to manage it. And then once we start to do that, when the devil comes at you, you don't have to fight because all you got to do is eat some bread. You see, it's, it's not you don't fight, it's the right fight. I don't have to worry about fighting Satan anymore. My fight is making sure the grain to make my bread is not taken. We've got to get 
focused on the right fight. We've got to get our mind focused on the right thing. What's the right thing? It's coming together and building up the body of Christ. You see, churches have become so focused on evangelism that we forget the point of this, a Saturday night service, is not evangelism. People have asked me, well, you never have, like, salvation calls, really. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not a good evangelist. I stink at it sometimes. What I am is someone who has been called to teach and empower you to go evangelize out there. And when you bring them here, this is their school of training to take grain and make bread to take it out there. So when they get hungry, they don't search for a drink or search for a smoke or search for a woman or search for a man. They just say, I've got bread that sustains me and I'm no longer going to have to worry about the schemes of the enemy. But no one's doing anything with the grain because we're focused on the wrong fight. We're focused on fighting an enemy that has already been defeated. What does he has already been defeated? What, what do we not understand about that? Jesus is like, it's done. And then we get together and go, how do we fight the enemy? It's not fighting the enemy. It's fighting the lie that he has a right to your grain. Is this, is this okay? Okay. John 6, 35, Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So we've done really good with believing in the bread of life, but we're not too good at feasting on the bread of life. We're really good at saying, Jesus, I love you. But when it comes down to it, when you're lonely, the last thing you're thinking about is reaching out to Jesus to sustain you. Because you're not eating bread, you're just believing in bread. He says, I'm the bread of life. Don't just come to me. I want to fulfill your hunger. I want to fulfill your thirst. So where we're going with Relentless is we're going to teach you how to make some bread. And we're going to teach you how to eat that bread when you get real hungry and you get real thirsty. And you're wanting to grab everything else, not realizing that you are shifting your mind to the wrong fight. Saul is obsessed with taking out David, and he's so obsessed with it that all the enemy is doing is, I got your grain, I got your grain, I got your grain. And the people are starving, and the leader ain't doing nothing to protect their bread. I'm talking about building a house more concerned with bread than Satan. Well, if we don't need to be concerned about with fighting, then why do we need an army? Because I started this whole thing out with seeking God, build a family, then the army will come. So if I don't need to be concerned so much with Satan, then why do I need an army? If you want to know, say, tell me. Look, look at 1 Samuel 23. Verses 1 through 5. One day news came to David that the Philistines were at Kelos healing rain from the, fleshing, from the threshing floors. David asked the Lord, should I go and attack them? Yes. Go and say Kela, the Lord told him. But David's men, remember, this is the army. They were afraid. They were in debt and they were troubled. They said, we're afraid even here in Judah. We certainly don't want to go to Kela to fight the whole Philistine army. Which is funny because they know David is the dude who took down the whole army with a stone. <laughs> so David asked the Lord again. And again the Lord replied, go down to Keilah. 
I'll help you conquer the Philistines. Saul is not seeking God. He's seeking ab- admiration for himself. He wants to make sure that he is good. David is seeking God. We need an army because in seeking God, God will lead us to the right fight. Saul was going to the wrong fight. Take out David. David was not led to go fight back at Saul. David was not led to defend his camp. God did not tell David, go after Saul because he's trying to take you out because that's the wrong fight. What was the right fight? People are starving because the Philistines are taking their food. And what was the army for? The army was not to go after the enemy of Saul. The army was to go after the injustice of starvation. The reason we need an army is because we've got to get outside of the idea that we're battling Satan and realize that the true battle is injustice that Satan is actually taking glory for. Satan's like, look what I'm doing. I'm disguising myself as an angel of light. I'm making all these people feel good about themselves, and they're lost in their sin. They're lost in this lifestyle, and Satan's like, I got them. I got them, and let me distract you Christians by fighting me over there in your houses. And David's like, no, no, no. We've got to go after the injustice. What the church has got to become is an army of people who are not going to just be, just be an army of prayer warriors, just be an army of worshipers, but an army dressed for battle to say, we're going after the injustice we're going after the people who no one will talk to who no one will embrace who the church puts to the side we want every single person in our midst because we're going after the injustice what's the injustice they're alone they don't feel loved they're hungry they're thirsty they don't have any of the fruit of the spirit of God so what do we do with injustice we embrace them we feed them we equip them and we say you are welcome in the midst of us we've got to get on the path to the right battle. Jeremiah Jeremiah 22, verse 3. This is what the Lord says. Be fair-minded and just. Do what is right. Help those who have been robbed. Rescue them from their oppressors. Quit your evil deeds. Do not mistreat foreigners, orphans, and widows. Stop murdering the innocent. If you obey me, there will always be a descendant of David sitting on the throne here in Jerusalem. The king will ride through the palace gates and chariots on horses with his parade of attendants and subjects. But if you refuse to pay attention to this warning, I swear by my own name, says the Lord, this palace will become a pile of rubble. If we obey God, the ruling powers and authority in this land will be submitted to Jesus who sits on the throne, the descendant of David. If not, the church will fall. Because let's just get real. The church celebrates how much money comes in more than injustice being met. We celebrate how many salvations we got when we have scripture that says many will call upon my name, but they will not know me. But we celebrate, oh, we got 300 people saved. But how many people are you teaching to make bread? The reason you can't teach them to make bread is because all your grain has gone because you've been so focused on this battle that the enemy's been taking everything out because he is a very, very sly character. Why does he disguise himself as light? So you think you're doing the good thing. 
because while you think you're doing the Saul thought he was doing the good thing, I'm taking out the man trying to take my throne. That's what Satan does. Let me get you obsessed with making sure your churches are sustained so that I can take all the grain. Let me get you focused more on fundraisers. Nothing wrong with a fundraiser. We've been doing it. But, 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 but are, are, are we totally focused to where that's our success measurement? Someone asked me, Pastor Kyle, how did y'all get so much money in? Did y'all do car washes, bake sales? I said, no, we cast vision and threw it out there and people gave. I, I don't have anything against car washes, but I refuse to spend like half of my week washing cars when God says, I have all you need, I'll provide it, please make the grain. I want to spend all my time saying, here's the training, here's the bread, here's how to do it, here's to get through it. I want to be so bold to call sin, sin, and people not be offended because they know I care so much about them that I will not let them go in this ignorant state of mind of staying where they're at. And just because we call it sin doesn't mean you're not allowed to be here because we're all, 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 all sinners saved by grace. I never want to be a church that says no to someone because of lifestyle, because of choices. Because that's what the enemy wants. Because as soon as you say no to them, they have no access to the grain. I, like, can, can, I, can I be like really real? I would love to put a sign up on that window that says, homosexuals allowed. If you've had an abortion, come on inside. Because what the church does is protest it and say, you're going to hell. And my God's like, you're robbing them of grain. The reason they're doing that stuff is because they don't know how to feast on bread. And all we're doing is like, we're getting together and we're going, oh, you're being led by the Jezebel spirit. And they don't even know what Jezebel is. You're following Satan and they're like, who the heck is Satan? That's not how to win people. How do we win people? Meet injustice. Get on board with the right fight. People are not going to come to Jesus just because he died on the cross. I'm sorry if you've been taught that, but that's not how it works. They don't come and say, oh, I believe in Jesus because he died. The reason they come is because we meet, we take justice, put it in the place of injustice, and they say, how did you do that? And then we give glory to the one who gave us the bread, and then they kneel at the cross in foot of Jesus. It's because it's in response to justice coming in to their atmosphere. But it's not coming in because we're focused on the wrong fight. We want to feel better about our protests, and we want to feel better, better about what we come together to say we're against. There's nothing wrong with that. It's okay to say we're against this and we're against that, but never let a political agenda drive the church. The church should be driving the political agenda. I know some of you are offended, but so be it. I'm speaking truth. We got to get on the right fight. Micah 6.8 says, No, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. This is what he requires of you, to do what is right to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To do what is right, bring justice, have mercy, and be humble. And if we don't do what is right with justice, 
we don't love mercy, if we don't walk in humility, the church will fall into a pile of rubble, according to Jeremiah. Again, in 1 Samuel 23, verse 5, David and his men went to Keilah. After they were scared, and it says, they slaughtered the Philistines. They took their livestock and rescued the people of Keilah. Why? Why did they win so good? This is only an army of about four to 600 people. How did they take out an entire army? Because they went to fight the right battle. Maybe the reason you're losing certain battles is because you're not meant to fight them. Why would God give you victory over something that he has never called you to engage with? <laughs> See, when they went to fight, they won. Why'd they win? Because they had one goal. Not kill the enemy. Rescue the starving people because their grain's being stolen. And people are not being rescued because they aren't bringing justice into their lives. You want people to be rescued with Jesus? It's not going to be by a track. I'm going to tell you what I used to do with tracks. <laughs> what, what are we? Bring justice to their situation. Go into the places and the corners that no one wants to go and bring justice. We spend so much time talking about our spiritual gifts and learning about spiritual gifts, but the problem is your gift is not meant to put you on a platform. Your gift is meant to help you bring justice. That's it. Your gift is not meant to show me how good you are as a Christian because the moment you talk about it, the moment I see pride and realize how stupid you really are. I'm that type of preacher. Justice. The reason people will come to Jesus is not because he died on the cross. It's because they saw justice in his name and then they kneel before the cross. And after he wins this, in verse 6 it says, Now when Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, he brought the ephod with him. Saul soon learned that David was at Keilah. Good, he exclaimed. We've got him now. God has handed him over to me for he has trapped himself in a walled town. Saul was not even seeking God. But he's using good language to persuade the people. Look at what he said. God has handed him over to us. Saul ain't seeking God. But he's using the right language to get the right people to do his task. Can I just say something? Your qualifier for trusting leadership should not be because they taught Jesus well. Qualifier for good leadership is someone who's trying to put you in the, 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 the empowering place to fight injustice. That's good leadership. Because you can talk churchies all day. Don't mean nothing. There's a difference in someone trying to corral people to their house versus trying to empower people out. And Saul is saying the good stuff, but he doesn't want to fight injustice. He wants to kill someone he's jealous of who has served him over and over and over. In verse 8, so Saul mobilizes his entire army to march at Keilah and besiege David and his men. <laughs> but David learned of Saul's plan and told Abiathar the priest to bring the ephod and ask the Lord what to do. Look at what David did. Let me tell you about this town he's in. He goes to Keilah. Keilah is a walled city. David and his army of four to 600 people are literally backed into a corner. Saul knows it. 
And now Saul and his massive army are coming to take out David and his little garrison of troops. And they're scared. They don't know what to do. But David doesn't go on this rant about, oh God, you betrayed me, you've forsaken me. What does he do? The first thing he says is he says, get me the ephod and we're going to ask God. Because if God has led us into a corner, into a city that is surrounded by walls, in the place where the enemy can take us out, if we believe that God has not and will not forsake us, then no matter what corner you got backed into, he knows how to get you out, and he had it planned before you ever walked in. And the problem is there are so many of us who are not willing to go into the corners and the dangerous places because we say we have faith, but when it puts us at a little danger, faith goes away and protection comes into play, even though we proclaim that he is the God who protects us. If he has led you there, it's for a reason, and he knows exactly what's going to happen. We can't be slow to walk into the corners that seem unsafe if God has called us to go there. David doesn't know what to do. He's in a tough situation. He's got people backed into a corner, and he does the one thing that he learned in the cave of Adullam. He says, let me talk to God. Now remember, it says that this dude is the son of Ahimelech. Ahimelech was the priest that David lied to. He was the priest that would end up being killed with the 84 other priests. And the son doesn't come to David and say, it's time to take revenge. The son of the dude that was killed because of David's lie comes to David and says, here is my father's ephod. Why? He isn't angry at David. Why isn't he angry? Because David's done exactly what he needs to do. He's repented. He's walked in humility. He's learned mercy. And he has brought justice. And now when he needs to talk to someone, the one who should hate his gut says, here's the ephod. Remember, the ephod is the covering of the priests. It has the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on each shoulder. Isaiah tells us that, uh, that, that Jesus now has the government on our shoulders. And we learn that Jesus is our high priest. That means that, that Jesus says, I am now the one who is praying on your behalf. And I carry the government on my shoulders. And when I'm leaving, I am now allowing you to be the, I carry you, the government on my shoulders. So David has shifted. He was seeking God and uh, about should we bring justice. God says, yes. And now the ephod is given to David, so now David can talk on behalf of the government. In other words, David's obedience has brought him to a new level of authority, all because of justice, humility, and mercy. And there's so many of us that want favor, favor, favor. So we seek all these, uh, like, like, uh, like uh, all, all these rewards and, and all these titles. And God's like, all you need is mercy and bring justice and walk humbly. And I'll take care of what you need. And in verse 10, it says, David, pray, O Lord God of Israel. I've heard that Saul was planning to come and destroy Keilah because I'm here. Now remember, he just rescued this town. He says, God, would the leaders of Keilah betray me to him? Why would they betray him? Because they, be, they don't want to be killed. 
Will the leaders of Caleb betray me to him? Will, will Saul actually come as I've heard? Oh, Lord, God of Israel, please tell me. And the Lord said, yeah, Saul's coming. And again, David asked, will the leaders of Keilah, the people I just saved, will they betray me and my men to Saul? And the Lord replied, yes, they will. So David got his men and killed the people of Keilah. Nope. David and his men, about 600 of them now, left Keilah and began roaming the countryside. Word soon reached Saul that David had escaped, so he didn't go to Keilah after all. These people were spared because David didn't want to respond and go after them because he was angry. He didn't want to get revenge on these people who would betray them. He says, my God has told me to walk humbly, bring justice, and show mercy. So he showed mercy to the people. He left the town. And because he gave mercy for what they did not deserve, they were spared. And look at verse 14. So David now stayed in the strongholds of the wilderness and the hill country of Ziph. Saul hunted him day after day, but God did not let Saul find him. Because he was full and fighting the right fight of justice and walking humbly and showing mercy, it says God did not let Saul find him. When God leads you to places when you're walking to meet justice, show mercy, and be humble, the enemy loses the ability to find you because you are hidden in your seeking. And that's why I say fight the right fight. Why should we fight a devil that can't even see us when we're hidden in him? The reason you're having to resist is because you're not hidden. The right fight is, I've, I've, got, I've got to bring justice. I've got to show mercy to that person who did me wrong, to that father who betrayed me, to that mother who betrayed me, to that sister who turned their back. I've got, I've got, I've got to show some mercy. I've got to walk humbly and realize I don't deserve anyone to owe me anything. I've got to bring some justice to this world. I've got to do what I'm called to do, and as long as I'm seeking God, the enemy will never find me. So I don't care what corner I'm in. I don't care what, what hell I'm in. The enemy never has the ability to see me because I'm hidden in my seeking. I'm in my secret place no matter where I walk. And then verse 15, one day near Horus, David received the news that Saul was on the way to Ziph to search for him and kill him. Jonathan went to find David and encouraged him. Remember, Jonathan is Saul's son to stay strong in his faith. Don't be afraid, Jonathan reassured him. My father will never find you. <laughs> the enemy will never find you because you are seeking him. You're seeking God. You're going to be the king of Israel. I will be next to you as my father Saul is well aware. <laughs> so the two of them renewed their solemn pact before the Lord. And then Jonathan returned home while David stayed at Horesh. But now the men of Ziph went to Saul and Gibeah and betrayed David to him. We know where David's hiding. He's in the strongholds of Horus on the hill of Hakilah, which is in the southern part of Jeshimon. Sure. Verse 20, come down whenever you're ready, O king, and we'll catch him and we'll hand him over to you. The Lord bless you, Saul said. At last someone is concerned about me. 
Go and check again to be sure where he's staying and who has, been, who has seen him there, but I know he's very crafty. Discover his hiding places and come back when you're there. Then I'll go with you. If he's in the area at all, I'll track him down even if I have to search every hiding place in Judah. So the men of Zephyr turned home ahead of Saul. Meanwhile, David and his men have moved into the wilderness of, of Maon in the Arabah Valley south of Jeshimon. When David heard that Saul and his men were searching for him, he went even farther into the wilderness to the great rock. Didn't say they set up battle. says they went deeper into the wilderness to a great rock. And he stayed there. It says he remained in the wilderness of Maon. Isn't that interesting? David knows that Saul's coming after him. And he gets to a great rock. And when God says stay, he stays. Even though the enemy's coming, even though life is hurting, even though everything's coming against him, David stays here. But Saul kept after him. Verse 26. Saul and David were now on opposite sides of a mountain. It's coming. And just as Saul and his men began to close in on David and his men, coincidentally, an urgent message reached Saul that the Philistines were raiding Israel. So Saul quit chasing David, returned to fight the Philistines. And ever since that time, the place where David was camped has been called the Rock of Escape. And David then went to live in the strongholds of Ben Gedi. Notice the thing that happened first. Jonathan reminded him, don't be afraid. Stay strong in your faith. God has spoken, it will be. You're going to be king. And I feel like speaking to some of you tonight. Stay strong in your faith. Don't have fear. You will be restored. The prodigals will return home. You will get out of the stronghold. You will become what God has called you to be. Nothing can stop it. Except for one person. You. Not Satan. You. And when David got that, and that pat was renewed, Saul never got a chance to see him. Saul never got a chance to attack him. Because God will always provide a rock of escape as long as you're in your seeking of him. He'll always provide a place for you to escape to in the midst of hurt, in the midst of pain, in the midst of attack. And you know what David proclaims about it? He writes a psalm, Psalm 18 too, The Lord is my rock. He's my fortress. He's my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He's my shield, the power that saves me, and my place of safety. He praises God and gives him glory. He doesn't give glory to, oh, look, I've got favor. He doesn't say, oh, I escaped them. Good job, guys. He doesn't say, see, see how I'm living. This is No, he, he does one thing. He takes a place of protection and he gives it to God. He doesn't say, thank God for this rock. He says, God, you're my rock. You are my fortress. You are everything. He gives glory to God and not himself, no one else, not his strategies, not his building, not his leadership, not his abilities, all God. God, you are. 
And the reason he can call God his rock is because he experienced God as a rock. And some of us don't experience that reality because we have not completely surrendered to the process. And you're holding on to doubt rather than trusting in faith. In that last verse, verse 29, it says David went to live in the strongholds of En Gedi after that rock of escape protected him. Some people never look into what En Gedi was. It was an oasis in Israel that literally meant the spring of the goat. It was a place of plenty of water supply for life to be sustained. After all this, going from a shepherd to a palace to running, being in a cave, getting to, going deeper into the wilderness, being backed into a corner, going deeper and deeper into wandering, on the other side of staying and wandering was a place he could reside in, reside in that had plenty of life-sustaining water. Because when God calls you to go deeper in your wilderness, it's because he has an oasis of life waiting for you. All because you said, even though it don't make sense, yes, God, I will go. I will fight the right fight. I will bring justice. I will show mercy. And I will walk humbly before you. God will never lead you to lack. There's always a place of more than enough. As long as you bring justice, stay humble and show mercy. That is the right fight. If that word spoke to you tonight, can you give God some praise? Let's stand.